If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 21 for our Old Testament scripture reading. begin reading in verse 10, and we'll actually read through verse 4 of chapter 22. Here, uh, we are given a uh, picture dropped into the midst of David's humiliation, as though he, although he has been uh, anointed as the king of Israel, he does not yet sit on the throne, for Saul continues to pursue and persecute David. David, please to the, as it were, the closest friend he has, which is no friend of all, it's the king of Gath, of the kin of Goliath, helps us to understand the situation that David is in. He has really no friends, no place of safety. 1 Samuel chapter 21, beginning in verse 10. David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. The servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? That Saul has struck down his thousands, yet David has struck down his tens of thousands. David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him, and everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, Everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about four hundred men. David went there from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please, my father and my mother, uh, stay. Please let them stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. And so David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Now turning with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 19, for our New Testament Scripture reading. We are brought to the consummate king of Israel, also suffering under the hands of all around him, both the Jews and the Gentiles. Here we are dropped into the middle of the story where Jesus is now crucified and not yet dead, but he hangs there surrounded by bandits and thieves also having been crucified, and yet Christ himself is different from all the others, for Christ had done no wrong and committed no sin, and yet here he is convicted as a common criminal. John chapter 19, we'll read verses 28 to 37. After this, Jesus, knowing all that was now finished, said, to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. 
A jar full of sour wine stood there, and so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. Well, since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first, of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it is born witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling you the truth, so that you also might believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, citing Exodus chapter 12 and repeated again in Psalm 34. Not one of his bones will be broken. And another scripture says, citing Zechariah, that they will look upon him whom they have pierced. And now turning with me one last time to Psalm chapter 34 for our sermon text this morning. You might think these are rather odd uh, scripture passages to read alongside Psalm 34. What does this have to do with anything? I hope uh, you will see the connections that are made that the scriptures um, bring together in helping us understand the context for why this psalm was written and the purpose and then for which it was written. Psalm chapter 34, it is a psalm of David, and here are the circumstances when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, that is before Achish, the king of Gath, so that he drove him out and he went away. David, writing under inspiration of the Spirit, says this, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all of my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who has taken refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, and listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all of his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. 
The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of them who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is God's word. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we come to sit under the ministry of Your Word, we ask that we would hear our Savior speak to us from heaven. Incline our ears to hear the Word preached that we would be diligent to attend all the things that we are called to believe and all those matters we are called to do in response to Christ who reigns on high as our prophet, our priest, and our King. Bless the reading, but especially the preaching of Your Word, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, what is it that terrifies you? Certainly we see in the passage in, before us in 1 Samuel 21, David's own horror. Here's a man who has been anointed as the king of the people of God. And yet he is being hunted down by a vicious tyrant who sits on the throne. David flees from the frying pan, as it were, into the fire. Fleeing from the man who should be his friend into the arms of the enemy. Here, David comes to one of the five Philistine citadels, the citadel of Gath. And yet, for those of you who know your Bibles, you know who it is that was once the victor of the people of Gath. It was Goliath. David is not coming into friendly territory, and yet it is the only place he knows to go. He seems to be surrounded and haunted by horrors on every side. How bad is it when the only place you know to flee is to Goliath's own extended family? And it seems here, as we have read 1 Samuel 21, that Gath's new king seen in Psalm 34 as Abimelech and known in 1 Samuel 21 as King Achish, he remains unimpressed with David's renown. He's heard the stories. He's heard the songs of the people. He says, really? Him? This is the guy who's supposed to be greater than Saul? Is David safe here? David, not knowing what to do, feigns insanity. But 1 Samuel makes it very clear that David's fear is not feigned, though his insanity is. David is terrified. He doesn't know what to do. What is it that will happen? And it is this particular context that provides the situation for this morning's psalm, Psalm 34. You see that here in the superscript. It is written upon this particular incident when David fled from the king of Gath. What is it that will happen? How is it that David responds in the midst of this? Here we find this particular psalm is what we call an acrostic psalm. What do I mean by that? What it means simply this, that every verse follows a line of the Hebrew alphabet, the equivalent of A, B, C, D, E, F, G. For 22 verses, I should say for 21 verses, it follows the Hebrew alphabet. It's an acrostic with the exception of one verse, the final verse that tells us what the theme of this particular psalm is. 
And yet, even though every verse simply follows uh, the Hebrew alphabet, it's a poetical device and structure, I think there is a threefold structure to this hymn of praise where David declares that the Lord is to be praised for having delivered his Messiah from every horror and praising the Lord for all the blessings he bestows on those who trust in him. I'd like us to consider this psalm in three parts. First, we'll consider the goodness of God in verses 1 to 10. Secondly, we'll consider the friendship of God in verses 11 to 18. And then finally, we'll consider the redemption by God for his people in verses 19 to 22. So goodness, friendship, and redemption counted among the many benefits and blessings that the Lord gives those who trust in him and take refuge in his Messiah. David begins here with a personal testimony as he recounts how it is that the Lord has come to deliver him. It's a hymn of praise. I will bless the Lord at all times. Literally, I will bless him in every circumstance. I kind of want to stop and think now that we recognize what the situation is, why it is that David wrote this song, you go, really? In every circumstance? Where we finished, there didn't really seem to be a happy ending as of yet. David is still on the run, and yet David begins with an acclamation of praise. I think according to earthly circumstances, this does not seem to be a fitting occasion for praise, David. Perhaps this is a better time for a psalm of distress or petition. David, you might be the anointed king, but you do not sit on the throne. David, far from it. Saul and his army are out to get you. The Philistines of Gath do not trust you and are unimpressed with your stories of victory against the forces of darkness. There are conspiracies both from within and without seeking to take you down. The nations have conspired and taken counsel together against the Lord's anointed. And yet these circumstances do not deter the king of Israel. He says, in every circumstance, at all times, I will bless Yahweh. Not only is this a private song, he says, come and join together with me as we magnify the Lord together. Despite the horrors that surround us, despite the terrors that distress us, despite the anxieties that beset us, come and join me and let us sing praise to our God. Why? For He has delivered me from all my fears, from every horror, from every terror. And he will deliver you from all of your fears as well. It's a transition that takes place here in verse 5 as David shifts from a personal testimony to the public promise. As he attests to the provision that the Lord gives all those who trust in him. In verse 5, we see an interesting contrast between light and darkness. Those who look to the Lord are radiant. 
When one reads this, one is perhaps reminded of Moses' face as he descends from the heights of Sinai. As Moses had engaged in personal communion with the Lord, he descends from the mountain and it is quite a visible expression on his face. It shines. Perhaps one is reminded of the blessing that the Lord commands Moses to have the priests invoke on the assembled, redeemed body of believers. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause His face to shine on you so that your faces too might be radiant. Here the faces radiate in the presence of the Lord for those individuals that know that He smiles favorably upon them The Lord is for me, therefore who can stand against me? They will not be ashamed. Quite literally, the Hebrew reads that their faces will not be darkened. What a contrast here. Despite the circumstances that surround us. We we know the imagery uh, when somebody says, why so gloom? We know when uh, there, there are personal tragedies that surround us. You can see the expression on one's face. It is darkened. It is dour. It is gloomy. With a countenance that is crestfallen because the circumstances weigh us down. It might be a sick parent with a crushing weight of false accusations. Massive debt. The sting of bitterness and the circumstances of life that seek to poison the soul. And yet David says here that despite these circumstances, those who look to the Lord, their faces will not be darkened. Their faces will shine and be radiant, for they know a joy that is not tethered to earthly circumstances. Think of Paul and Silas as they sat in a prison cell. They sing for joy. How could they do that? Because they knew that these earthly circumstances could not steal from them what had been given to them. There is a God who forgives sin. You think of the great Puritan John Flavel. makes a rather stark contrast between Adam and Job says that Job had a better situation. He had a better lot sitting on the dunghill than Adam had in the garden. And we think, John, have you read your Bible? (laughs) Doesn't seem to be the case. What could be a worse situation than Job? Who would ever want to be in Job's shoes? And yet, Flavel makes that particular contrast because he says what Adam had in the garden, as good and great as it was, could be lost. Yet what Job had, sitting in the dung heap, could not be lost because he had the promise of God. It was a promise that could not be revoked, could not be reneged on. It was a promise that the Lord would, in fact, vindicate him and deliver him from all harm. Which is why Job is able to say in chapter 13, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. This is why David can sing for joy in the midst of such dour circumstances. This poor man cried, and the Lord saved him out of all his distresses from every trouble. 
The world might hate me, but there is one who is greater than the world. And because of that, the reproaches of Christ are of far greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Here is the Lord who will deliver me from every anxiety, even when earthly circumstances try, shouting everything to the contrary, that you are all alone, that there is no one who is coming to save. Think of Christ on the cross. Isn't that the very voice uh, that the mockers, uh, the, the, very, the very thing that the mockers uh, shouted to Christ? If you truly are the Son of God, save yourself. Why can't you do it? Apparently, you've been abandoned. No, we see here that for all who fear the Lord, the promise stands firm. The angel of Yahweh encircles around about you, and he delivers you. You think of that situation in 2 Kings chapter 6, where Elisha and his servant are on the way, and they get surrounded by a hostile enemy pagan army. They are outnumbered, outgunned, and outmanned, and Elisha's servant cries out in terror, who is there to deliver us? And yet Elisha remains steadfast and confident because he knows truly what the situation is. And he turns to his servant and he says, Do not fear for those who are with us more than those who are with them. Can you think of Elisha's servant's immediate thought as he's looking at just him and, you know, Elisha and himself, and he's like trying to count on his fingers? All right, there's two of us. And we're surrounded by an entire pagan army. Have, have you failed your math class, Elisha? And yet Elisha prays, Lord, open his eyes to see. And Elisha's servant is given a peek behind the veil. And he finally sees what the true reality consists in, that the army of the Lord, the angelic hosts, surround Elisha and his servant arrayed in a blazing fire. And as soon as Elisha's servant sees, the army is blinded. That pagan army. And Elisha and his servant are delivered. And you see here that it's the great promise given to the people of God. There's a rather interesting pattern that we see here in this particular psalm. It's a pattern that we've seen in so many psalms that come before it. Harkening back all the way to Psalms 1 and 2, the close relationship of Israel's king and her people. A close union, a a, a solidaric identity. So many Psalms we see David reiterate time and time again, this is what happened to me, and therefore this will be what happens to you. It was true for me, therefore it is true for you. We see here, oh, time and time again, that David stands not simply as the head of his people, but also as the representative of his people. Even as you read Psalms 1 and 2, which I think are two psalms intended to be read together, in Psalm 1 there's the great pronouncement of blessing on all those who delight in the Lord, who fear his name. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, Psalm 2 The blessing is pronounced and reduplicated yet again. Blessed are all those who take refuge in the Lord's Messiah. Blessed are all those who take refuge in the Lord's Christ. You see, the the king of his people 
Israel's king, the Messiah, stands as the crux upon which the blessing stands or falls. To fear the Lord is to kiss the Son. To take refuge in the Son is the expressive act whereby a man is said to fear the Lord. If somebody says they fear God, the next question should be, well, what is your response? What is your disposition to the Lord's Messiah? To his anointed representative, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet what we see time and time again in these poetic forms and statements is that the same favor the Lord disposes and bestows upon his anointed son is the same favor that he will bestow upon all those who are united under the banner of his son. We see it even in Hence, in 1 Samuel chapter 22, as David flees Gath, and he assembles and commandeers an army. What is it? Who are the type of people who are assembled under the banner of David? It is not the strong and the mighty. Rather, it is the distressed, the indebted, and the embittered doesn't really seem like uh, the type of coalition army that you'd want to have as David gathers his messianic army. And yet, isn't that the same case with David's greater son? A couple of fishermen? A tax collector? A couple of zealots? Insurgents that Jesus has to repeatedly correct and their false views of the relationship of his kingdom to the kingdoms of this world. And yet, despite their backgrounds and circumstances, despite the, 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 the oppression that they've undergone, despite the massive debt that so many have, despite the embittered hearts uh, and the poison that has infected their hearts, they are blessed because they have united themselves under the banner of the Lord's anointed it's the same thing we find in full expression under the New Testament is Christ. The, uh, the, the, the consummate king of Israel comes to his people and says, Come to me, all you who are weary, all you who labor, and I will give you rest. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here we find the most unlikely subjects becoming the recipients of the Lord's favor. And that is exactly what David is doing. He's speaking to those men under his command. Sinners like you and me. And yet saying that those who take refuge in the Lord and his anointed will truly be blessed. Here the king calls out to taste uh, that, that, that we might taste of the Lord's goodness by seeking shelter in him and fearing him. David gives a contrast here. He says, consider the lions. What beast is more aggressive out in the wild than the lion? And yet David says, they suffer want. They grow hungry. But the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Those who put their hope in the Lord, though you might be afflicted, though you might be uh, storm-tossed, though you might be uh, considered desolate in the eyes of the world. If you turn to the Lord, 
His face will shine on you. Your faces will become radiant. They will not be ashamed. They will not be dark. And you will never suffer want and hunger. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing, even when circumstances are trying to say otherwise. Because the Lord has sent His Son to represent His people and to bless His people. The blessing comes through all those who fear the Lord and take refuge in the Lord's anointed. But of course, the question is, what does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, we see that here in verses 11 and 18. David says, let me show you the means to the good life. What is the means to the good life? It's the fear of the Lord. Right? If David's son Solomon speaks of the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom. David himself here speaks of the fear of the Lord being the beginning and consisting in the beginning of goodness. Fearing the Lord consists in these things, he says here in verses 13 to 14. This is not exhaustive, but he gives a sketch of the character and disposition of the man who fears Yahweh. Verse 13, he speaks the truth. There is no evil, there is no fraud, there is no deceit that is found in his mouth. There is, in one sense, a reciprocal relationship between the Lord and his people. You notice here in verse 13, it says, keep watch over your tongue. And then in verse 20, repeats the same thing. For the Lord will keep watch over your life. Isn't that what Jude says to the church? The New Testament? Keep yourselves in the love of God, for He, your good and faithful shepherd, will keep you. There's a reciprocal relationship here. Speak the truth. Guard your lips. That is what it means to fear the Lord. If a man says he fears God and is slandering his neighbor, he does not fear God. Not only that, but verse 14, we are called to pursue peace, to turn from evil and do good. In other words, David says, you want a taste of the Lord's goodness? Pursue goodness. These are the things that the Lord delights in. Think of the world around us, how everyone seeks to obtain greater goods through evil means. Yet that is not the path of the believer. Those greater goods are received, not earned, but they do come through a life of godliness. What is that greater good? What is man's chief end? Well, it is the glory and enjoyment of God. Do you wish to see that good? Then pursue those things that conform to God's will. Pursue those things that he delights in. Pursue the Lord Himself. Make Him your chief end as He has promised to be your exceedingly great reward. And here, in doing so, you will come to taste and know what true goodness consists in. It consists in friendship with the Maker of heaven and earth. You see that here in verses 15 to 18. Notice how it is as if the Lord's entire countenance is disposed, it is bent towards the one who fears him. Verse 15, it is his eyes and ears that are bent towards his people. Number 16, it is his face that shines on you and burns against the wicked. Verse 17, it is his salvation which comes from delivering you from all of your anxieties. And verse 18, it is his very presence 
as the Lord promises to be near the brokenhearted. The one who sits on high, the lofty one, he considers it his privilege to serve those who have been broken and in a state of misery and sin. He doesn't rub shoulders with those who stand high and mighty. He comes to those who are weary and tired, to those who mourn their sin. Those are the ones that the Lord loves. So great is the Father's love for us. He is near the brokenhearted. He is near those whose spirits have been crushed. So that the Lord is called the friend of sinners. What a great feature that is. What a great benefit it is in knowing God. And yet we find here in the closing portion of this psalm that is not the most striking feature. The most striking feature of God's uh, beneficence towards His people is that of redemption. So many afflictions befall us, yet the Lord has come to deliver us from every affliction every time. Know what David is not saying. He's not saying that the righteous will not see affliction, but rather they will be delivered through every affliction. They will be saved from every horror. He gives a rather fascinating specification regarding the righteous man's deliverance. Notice what it says here. Not a single one of his bones will be broken. That's a really odd promise, you might think. Is that, does that mean that if you fall off a ladder one day and break your leg, then the Lord somehow hates you and you do not belong to the Lord? That's not what David is getting at here. David is giving a very pointed allusion to the book of Exodus. You read of Israel as they have been in bondage and slavery for 400 years crying out for deliverance, one day the Lord says, the time has come. The time in which I have appointed, the time in which I told Abraham, after serving 400 years, I will come to deliver my people and your children from slavery and bondage and sin. And the Lord comes in justice and mercy. He rains down ten judgments upon the nation of Israel. And then he, as, as he delivers and is on the brink of leading Israel out of Egypt, he provides them with a meal. And he provides them with a particular sacrifice, that of the Passover lamb. And on the night of the final judgment, as the angel of the Lord, as the angel of death sweeps over Uh, the land, enacting judgment for sin. The Lord says, take a lamb and slaughter it. Apply the blood to the doorpost and everyone who is within the house will be delivered from uh, this, this vengeful act, this act of justice against sin. It's the only way in which you will be redeemed and it comes through the death of a substitute. And yet... With respect to the killing of this lamb, you shall not break any of its bones. Rather odd command. And yet notice what David is doing here. David now begins to speak of this, this righteous individual, this righteous man par excellence as it were, 
using the language of the Passover lamb. Same thing we see elsewhere in the Old Testament. For instance, Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah speaks of a suffering servant who will come one day to take away the sin of the world, who will be led away like a lamb to the slaughter, will bear the sin of the people and make intercession for transgressors here. There's the great promise attending the righteous man of the Lord that not a single one of his bones shall be broken. He now applies it here to the righteous man, as it were, par excellence, the Lamb of God and the King of his people, him who represents the nation, who is not only the head of the nation, but the fountainhead of every blessing, who in his identification with his people procures redemption so that they in their union with him are in fact redeemed. That is the great blessing that befalls all those who are united under the banner of Israel's Messiah. So that, verse 22, him who takes refuge in the Lord will not be condemned, but rather all of his sins will be washed away. As we've seen in all the other Psalms leading up to this Psalm, taking refuge in the Lord is found, and taking refuge and his anointed representative on earth, the Messiah, the Christ. You see how Psalm 34 continues to push us over and over and over again to the cross. I said that this psalm is an acrostic, and that every verse begins with a, a, um, in succession of the Hebrew alphabet, the only exception being that final verse. You see that here in verse 22. It breaks the mold and it tells us this is the direction, this is the flow uh, to which this entire psalm is moving, that the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. How is it that the Lord takes refuge in his servants? Well, it brings us back to that initial context why David has written this psalm. As David has fled both from Saul and from Gath, and now he has mustered forces uh, under uh, his command, uh, force uh, of individuals who do not look like the people who would be the recipients of redemption, and yet they become the very recipients of redemption. Four times we see a repeated refrain in this psalm. You see it in verse 4, in verse 6, in verse 7, and 17, that the Lord delivers and rescues us from every horror, from every trouble, from every distress, and from all anxiety. And yet the point here is not simply an earthly-minded deliverance, as he not simply comes to deliver us from the horrors of this life of misery, but most of all, he comes to deliver us from the horror of sin. As the righteous man is spoken of in these final verses, in the language of that suffering lamb who bears the sins of the people, not a single one of his bones will be broken, so that the Lord might bring redemption Which brings us to the greatest moment and perhaps the greatest horror to befall the human race. What greater horror is there than the cross of Calvary? When one considers the manner of death, perhaps there is no death, few deaths more horrific than this, and yet we recognize that Christ is not the only one who is crucified. 
And yet when we read the Gospels, we recognize that Christ is dying in a very particular way, even in a way that even distinguishes him from those who are crucified both on the left and on the right. Because here Christ, as he hangs on the cross, he bears the wrath not merely of the Jews and the Gentiles who have conspired uh, to take counsel together against the Lord's anointed. But here he hangs on the cross bearing the wrath of a holy God in all of its justice and all of its terror. And yet he did so with joy. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross that we might partake of the fruit of his conquest over sin and death. Here the true king of the people of God bears every horror that we would ever face so that we might be delivered from the wrath to come. So that when afflictions and trials and tribulations face us, we can sing with all the other saints in history that it is well with my soul. That there is a deliverance that comes not through the good works that we have done, but through trusting in the Lord's anointed. That by trusting in Christ, there is peace and rest that is offered to those who are weary and heavy laden. It's the very reason why we gather together on the Lord's day. It's the very reason why we have assembled together to honor no other person but the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the one who has come to deliver us from all of our sin and all of our sorrow. That he is the only means by which we will truly be rescued and delivered from every horror. For there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved, be it from the horrors of this life or the horrors of eternity being alienated and separated from God. There is no other means of salvation, no other means by which man can be saved but by the Lord Jesus Christ. By coming to him, you will truly taste and see that the Lord is good. And that is our exhortation this morning, to taste and see what he has accomplished for us in our salvation. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly fathers, we consider your psalm. Uh, that you've given to us, we pray that it would teach us to sing your praise in every circumstance, in every situation, that when, that when we are beset with anxieties and distresses, uh, that we would turn our thoughts to Christ uh, and know that there is the great deliverance that awaits us all on the last day when we will be raised from the dead as death will be slain and undone. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.